So, tonight's year is sponsored by Anonymous in honor of the soldiers and the volunteers, okay? And we're gonna start off tonight with a joke, which generally I actually don't like to say jokes, even though, what? Gemara says, but I generally don't like to say jokes. Why? Just because I'm scared. Because if you say a joke and the joke bombs, it's a disaster, which by the way, when I was younger, I had a dream to be a stand-up comedian. That was my dream. And I used to study stand-up comedians. I thought it was the most incredible talent. No, because a guy could stand up with a microphone, with nothing else. People have to get up, they have the whole show or dancing. could stand up just with a microphone and entertain a whole room. I thought it was an unbelievable talent. But then I thought to myself, could you imagine if you get up there and you say a joke and the joke doesn't go well and it bombs? Disaster. So with all of that buildup, here's the joke. Okay? Oh, wait a second. Before we start... Yes, before we start, in order to keep the flow of the shear, we're going to keep questions until the end of the middle. We're probably going to do a pause in the middle because it's a little bit of a two-part and we're going to keep the questions to then so that the, the shear can flow properly and there's no, people don't lose their train of thought or anything like that. Yes. Okay. So, the joke goes like this. His entire life, there was a guy named Shlaimi, and Shlaimi's dream was to win the lottery and Shlaimi was a serious yid. Shlaimi was a real Torah Jew. And Shlaimi was a good guy, and Shlaimi would David every single day, and he would say, Hashem, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, you know, I really, I'm a strong believer, I deserve it, you know what I would do with the money, I would give it to charity, I'd be such a good, and he would daven every single day. And guess what? Shlaimi never won the lottery. Every single day, would daven never won the lottery. Finally, one day, he's davening, and he's mamish, he's pouring his heart out, he's crying, he's saying, Abishter, what do I need to do to finally win? And actually, the heavens open up, a boss call, a voice comes down from the heaven and says, Shlaimi, buy a ticket already. <laughs> ah, okay, so the shear goes like this. We have a very simple question. If you look at this week's Parsha, you'll see that it starts off talking at length about the dreams of power. First of all, before we start, Alachayim. Okay. And we start off at length discussing the dream of Pari. And you see it goes for literally over 30 psukim. 30 verses it says Pari had a dream, the cows and the corn, and they brought Yosef, and it goes super in length. And if you look in the Torah, Rabbi Akiva says you could take one letter and just look at the crowns of that one letter, and you could make an ocean of Torah from that. So the question is, why do we need to know so in depth about Pari? Meaning, if you think about it, until we come to this part of the Torah, in general, the non-Jewish secular rulers are not given a lot of importance. We see the kings fall, the kings rise. We only focus on the forefathers, on the Jewish narrative. We don't focus at all on the leaders. All of a sudden, when it comes to Paro, starting here and then leading into the entire saga of the Exodus, we go in depth into Paro and his dreams and everything. And the question is, why do we care? Why is it relevant to us to know about what Paro's dreams were? So we hear this is based on a talk that the Rebbe gave in Yiddish, and it was translated, and that's why I wrote um, the Rebbe through the lens of Rabbi Sachs, because it was translated by Rabbi Lord Dr. Jonathan Sachs. So it has a twist of both of them together, and it's a fascinating combination. So he says like this, the reason why we go so into this narrative is because of the context. What's the context? Is that we don't care about power. We don't care about the Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt. That's not relevant to us. What's relevant to us is Joseph. Joseph, Yosef, is the one who comes along and he's the mamala makom. He's the one who takes over for his father. He is what we call, in every generation, you have a Moshe Rabbeinu, right? 
You had Avram, you had Yitzhak, you had Yaakov, you have Yosef. Every generation has the one leader who was the leader of that generation. And who was it for that generation? It was Yosef. So what's this whole saga of the dreams? It's not about power. It's about Yosef interpreting the dreams. And we see in general that Hashem liked to communicate to Yosef because subsequently of his father Yaakov through dreams. So when it was coming to power in the dreams, it wasn't through power. It was that the dream should come from power to Yosef. What does that tell you? Is that in general, the entire context and surroundings of a Jewish person's life are based on him, not based on the surrounding. Which means in this story that we're saying over here, who's the main character? Is it power getting the dream? And power is the one who's having this dream and he's the one who ends up saving Egypt because he brings in Yosef? Or is the story about Yosef? And the answer is the story is about Yosef. If Yosef wasn't there in that prison, power would never have been chosen to have a dream. That has nothing to do with power. It has to do with Yosef. What does that tell you? Is that every single Jewish person controls his environment. There's actually a Yiddish saying for this. The saying is, Ayid machta sviva. I don't know if you ever heard that before. Maybe in yeshiva or camp. Ayid machta sviva. Which means a Jewish person makes and controls his surroundings completely. He's the one, not just on a physical level, on a spiritual level. He's the one that actually emanates what is going to happen around him from who he is, not from what's going on around him. Now, why is that relevant? Is because, let's say something like today happens, where you have rampant anti-Semitism going on in the world, and you see it's growing, and you see Jewish people are now deciding how should they fight anti-Semitism? What should we do, right? So what does that come from? It comes from us. What does that mean it comes from us? It doesn't mean that we blame ourselves for everything, just to be clear. We control our environment, which means when we stand strong as Jewish people, when we are proud and we believe in what we believe in truthfully and faithfully, then we control that surrounding. Everybody feels that and it creates the reality in the world. Now you might say to yourself, okay, now what happens if I'm a proud Jew? And I know I'm a proud Jew. And yet the world around me is still not becoming proud of Jews. I'm still not mocking a sviva like it says in the saying, why is it not changing? I'm supposed to control my environment. How come the world is staying the same way and I know that there's not even the slightest semblance of embarrassment of being Jewish inside me? So then that's a separate thing. That's called a challenge. That sometimes God puts into the world where a Jew encounters a challenge and what's the reason why he encounters the challenge is in order to be able to overcome that challenge. And when he realizes that it's a challenge, automatically he can vanquish it. He can completely annihilate it instantaneously right when he moves past. So the problem is like this. The way that Hashem decided to make the world, and we discussed this a lot about the idea of the matrix and the video game, etc., etc., all these different examples, is that the physical world totally conceals over this idea. When you walk around the world, you don't see any of this. You don't see how, oh, the Jewish people are controlling, like other than, of course, the, uh, the anti-Semitic, what do you call them, anti-Semitic tropes or anti-Semitic stereotypes, that there's some sort of grand Jewish uh, business... Uh, what do you want to say? Business conspiracy group of guys who are sitting down. What are they called? The elders of Zion, I think, is the one. Where they're sitting down somewhere and they're controlling. What? Brigger Towers. Towers, exactly. Where we're controlling the entire world from this conference room. There's a real conspiracy theory like this, which many people in the world believe. That the elders of Zion are controlling the world. Right? And of course, I'm not saying that's the reality. But I'm not saying it's far from the reality. I'm saying it's closer to the reality than you think. That we're showing over here from this story that this entire taking the greatest ruler in the entire world, the Pharaoh, who at that time was the equivalent of the president. You don't really have the equivalent because the president is under a lot of control from Congress and the Senate. But imagine you had the king of the United States was an undisputed king 
and his entire purpose is only to send the dream through him to get to Yosef, and then to make Yosef the second most powerful in the world, and then to bring the Jewish people down to Egypt, and then the entire story to have to Egypt in order that they should be born into a nation. Pharaoh is just a pawn moving around for the Jewish people's sake. And it's the same in every single generation, and we learn it from this week's Parsha. So what's the issue? Is that if you look, you'll see in the story of Purim, which we mentioned many times in our Shiram, because I feel like it's the best example. How do we see this? That to us, the physical reality around us is not the main idea, but rather the spiritual reality, is look at Esther and Purim. What happens with Esther and Purim? Esther, we know, was the wife of the king, Agashverosh, the complete dictator of 127 countries. We had the best connection you could possibly have in politics. Now, what happens when it comes time for us to nullify the decree? What does she do? Does she come in and she makes herself all beautiful and she does a whole hairdo or a whole, you know, nails or whatever it is, all the stuff, hair transplants, I don't know what, she comes in. What does she do? She fasts for three days before she comes to her husband. And we know Achashverosh is not a spiritual man. He wants his wife to look as best she could possibly look and that's the most important thing to him in the whole world. And yet, what does she do? She still fasts for three days. And that does not make her more beautiful. She doesn't fast because she's on a diet like a supermodel. What? Pesach. Pesach. Okay. Okay. And what? Okay. So, but what's the idea from it is that she didn't go and be machshev. She didn't give importance to the physical reality in front of her. Rather, she said the most important thing is the spiritual reality. What was the first thing they did in the time of Purim? First, Mordechai gathered everybody. First, they got the spiritual guidance, and then came the physical guidance. What? Yes. So that's idea number one, okay? Just to pause after that. Does idea number one make sense? Idea number two. Idea number two is like this. What was the difference? We know that Yosef and Paro both had dreams, right? If you look at anybody's Shir or Dvar Torah around this time, everyone's talking about dreams. The dreams, it sounds very, you know, it's an exciting topic, dreams and this and that. So we see these partials are talking a lot about dreams. Yosef had dreams, and that's what ended him up in a very bad situation with his family and his brothers smack into a pit. And Paro has dreams. And Paro's dreams end up leading to him saving the entire Egypt. But the question is, what's the difference between their dreams? We see a huge difference between them. Paro's dreams and Yosef's dreams. What's the difference between them? Paro's dreams, if you look in the dream, it shows you the idea of the difference between Kedusha, between holiness, and not Kedusha, anything which is not holy. What do we see is a trademark value of holiness. Holiness takes work. If you look in Yosef's dream, his dream actually starts off that they're gathering wheat. Why is it talking about gathering wheat? Because when it comes to Kedusha, there needs to be work. There's no such thing as a free lunch. If there is such a thing as a free lunch, it's not coming from a good place. It's not going to end up with good results. Yosef's dream needs work. Power's dream has nothing to do with work. His dream, it starts off all the, the cows, the corn, there's no labor involved. That might sound like a small detail, but it's not. Because if you look in the Torah, like we said Rabbi Akiva before, every single word and letter is precise. And the fact that by Yosef's dream, which we're talking about the wheat bowing down and the planets bowing down, it starts off about gathering sheaves, is not a side note. It's very relevant to tell you that Yosef's dream was coming from a holy place and Paro's was not. What's the second difference? Is that Paro's dream, everything is going down. Yosef's dream, everything is going up. What does that mean? In Yosef's dream, first we're talking about wheat, right? And then he slowly increases to talk about stars and planets. You see that his physical reality is going up. That's what Kedusha is. Kedusha constantly and consistently goes up. 
It may take more hard work. It may be more gradual. But in the end, it will always end up on top. Power the opposite. Power starts off with the fat cows. Then we go to corn. Then the sickly cows, the bad corn. It's going down, down, down to the point that there's nothing left. Because that's what happens when something is not holy. It will never last. It will never be consistently growing and consistently increasing. It will always go down. Now, here's where we want to get into the juiciness of today. Okay? This is the juiciness of today. I saw, which I saw you sent the shear as well, but I don't know, I didn't get a chance to watch your shear yet, but I saw an unbelievable story that happened in 1933. Because if you look at the world today, you ask yourself a very simple question. For those of us who come to Kolel on Monday morning, we know that the Rambam in Morad of Bukhim speaks about how the greatest value, one of the most important values, the Rambam says, is a person to have knowledge. Right? Human knowledge, for a person to increase in their intellectual knowledge, and he's not talking about spiritually or like, you know, Kabbalistically. He's talking about a person sitting and learning. This is the greatest thing a person could acquire. But now we have a very simple question. Look at the Metsias of the world. Now you don't have to go back a thousand years. Our practical modern reality. You have today people coming, and I don't know exactly where it was, the Senate, the Congress, whatever it is. You have three people, the presidents of three of the most prestigious universities in the entire world. We're talking about universities where everybody has to be a genius. I know I, growing up, you always had a joke, Harvard, like if you went to Harvard, it meant automatically you were like a different status person. You were like, not just smart, you were like this, oh, Harvard means, we even had a joke, there was someone we knew who went to Harvard who wasn't uh, the brightest tool in the shed, and everybody made fun of him, because it's like, how did you get into Harvard? That was always the joke, because nobody knew how you got into Harvard. So you have these three presidents sitting in front of this, whatever, House of Education Committee, I'm not sure what it was, and they can't condemn genocide of Jewish people. And then you say, this is crazy, right? But then you go back to 1933 Germany. Okay, I saw an amazing article by a guy named Svi Freeman where he goes through how the situation is deteriorating right now and what we can do about it. When he said what we can do about it, I did not understand him well enough to be able to share with you, but it's okay because it's not relevant to this year. But this part is relevant to this year. Peter Drucker wrote down what happened in 1933 Germany in Frankfurt University. So the Nazis were very smart. They were very intelligent. As much as we hate them, Yamach Shemam, they were brilliant and absolutely evil. And they knew exactly what they needed to do to bring down that society. Now you have to remember, of course, we're talking about Germany in 1933 was the most respected country in psychology, in philosophy, in science, in the arts, in mathematics, and everything. They were number one. So we're not talking about a country of idiots. We're talking about a country of brilliant people. So the Nazis realized, where are we going to penetrate? Where are we going to find the weak link that's going to exploit the entire system? The universities, the campuses. So they come to Frankfurt University, and they appoint a new president of Frankfurt University, a new boss, okay? And he was not, it wasn't like they tried to put in some like professor, Nazi, brilliant. He was a total knucklehead, SS, terrifying, just like a real strong man. And they put him in charge of the university. And he was going to put everybody else into line. So in this university, in Frankfurt University, there was one professor who was known, was head and shoulders above everyone else. He didn't write his name in the article, so I don't know his name. But he was a biochemist, physiologist, Nobel Prize winner. He was the star of um, Frankfurt University. So what happens? They call a meeting. And they call in all the faculty of Frankfurt University. And they put this guy sitting at the head of the table. And he starts saying to them, these are going to be the new rules. There's no Jews allowed on campus, no Jews allowed to be accepted, obviously. 
no Jews in the faculty, no Jews. He goes through all the different things and he says, if anybody has a problem with this, we're going to send you to a concentration camp, period. That's it. This is not like a discussion. This is the reality. So all the faculty is thinking to themselves, this is crazy, right? Meaning everyone's sitting there. If they're faculty in Frankfurt University, they must have been brilliant people. They're thinking to themselves, this is nuts. But what do people naturally do in that type of a situation, especially when it's that terrifying? They look to the leader. Nobody wants to make that decision themselves. Everyone looks to the leaders. Everyone looks, what's this Nobel Prize biochemist, physiologist, what's he going to say? So you know what he says? And I'm going to quote him. This is a quote written down from a guy named Peter Jerker who wrote down the exact words from this biochemist, this physiologist, Nobel Prize, whatever you want to call it. He says like this. He says, very interesting. After this guy's whole rant where he says about what's going to happen to the Jews and what we're going to do, he says, very interesting, Mr. Commissar, and in some respects, very illuminating. But one point I did not get too clearly. Will there be more money for research in physiology? That was his question when he said this whole rant about what's going to happen to the Jews. In addition to that, the most celebrated philosopher of the time in the entire world, who actually was known, and still today, even after everything, when he became a Nazi, rightfully so, apparently, I'm not big in the philosophy field, but this man apparently was head and shoulders above everyone else in the world. His name was Martin Heidegger, okay? Martin Heidegger, when all the Nazis came to power, Martin Heidegger stated, the Fuhrer himself and he alone is the German reality, present and future and its law. Study to know, from now on, all things demand decision and all action responsibility, Heil Hitler. This is from the words of Martin Heidegger, okay? So the question is very simple like this. If Maimonides is right in Mornavuchim, if in general the Rambam is right, how is it possible that human knowledge when it is achieved at the highest capacity, can lead you to a place of absolute barbaric behavior and craziness. How is it possible somebody is super rational, they're supposed to be the greatest philosopher in the world, how is it possible for their brain to go to such a place? It doesn't make any sense. So the answer like this, the possible answer like this. The Rebbe studied in the Sorbonne University from 1928 to 1932, okay, for four years. He studied physics and mathematics, as well in the University of Berlin. He learned under some of the greatest minds of that time. I'm not talking about Rabbanim and Yeshivas. The names are Ern Schrodinger. I don't know any of these names, but I'm reading them just if you know any of them, just to understand the caliber that he was learning at the time. John von Neumann, Hans Reichenbach, Walter Nenst, Wolfgang Kohler, Paul Hoffman, many great names in the university field. And he wrote down how he single-handedly witnessed the downfall of rational thinking to the Third Reich how he saw that Europe was completely going to its knees. And he wrote down in his diary, which is actually a very hotly contested idea amongst Hasidim of the Rebbe, that because he wrote down in his private diary, which is only discovered after he passed on. Somebody found them in his desk. His private diaries that he kept at the time when he was in university, what he was observing. And he wrote down like this. It's diary, it's dated, Paris, 1935, Hanukkah. This is what he wrote down. He said that reason which means human intellect, when a person tries to use his logic, it allows you the ability to recognize your failures, right? Because if you use your logic and intellect properly, your intellect is supposed to guide you, that your emotions are maybe taking you this way and that way, and your intellect grounds you and says, this is the proper solution, this is where we need to go, right? Now what happens is the problem is, what happens if the intellect itself is not in a good place? And the Rebbe, because it was Hanukkah, brought out from the word Yavan, if you look at the word Yavan, you would love this. If you look at the word Yavan, there's one time in the entire Torah, I don't know if you call it the Torah, it's, it's in Tehillim, 
where the word Yavon comes in a bit of a different context, the word is Yavain. What does Yavain mean? Yavain, yes, Yavain. Now what does it show? Is that a person, in general, the Torah says that the wisdom, the knowledge is like water. Now what happens if you take water and you mix it with earth? What happens if you take intellect and you pollute it? Then it turns into mud. What's mud? Mud, you sink. You go all the way down and you keep sinking. And the idea that can happen with intellect is once the reason, once your core is lost, once your core starts moving, then not only does intellect not guide you, it actually drags you further and further down. Because now you can't save yourself because you say, oh, I'm a rational guy. I'm not a lunatic. I know how to use my brain properly. But if your brain is not in the right place, you don't even know that. And you could be going to crazy places, but you don't know because when you only rely on intellect and you have nothing else anchoring you, then you can go wherever you want. Any brilliant mind, the opposite, a brilliant mind can take it wherever it wants. It can be creative and say, this makes more sense. Now this makes more sense. And we see that today in basic realities happening in America where people are saying crazy things that if you would tell the people 70 years ago, they would say that's nuts. Just that's nuts. But today people could say crazy things and they could say it on the basis of this is the right thing because this is what intellectually makes sense. And only a, a barbarian would say otherwise, right? So listen to this. If you look at the word Yavan, you'll notice the idea that we were speaking about before, how anything which is not holy goes down. The word Yavan itself is Yud Vav Langanun, right? Or what do you call it? Nun Sofit. Nun Sofit. So Yud starts off, it's at the top. It's pure, the Pintala Yid, it's right there, the little Yud. And then it goes down to the Vav, and then it goes even further down. The word Yavan itself shows you what happens when something is not holy, it will degrade, and it will eventually turn into evil. So listen to this. This is not from the Rebbe. This is from a guy. His name was Aldous Huxley. Not a Jewish source whatsoever, but he writes about, he was the first guy, his grandfather was the one who came up with the word agnostic, right? And agnostic means somebody who doesn't care about religion. He's not an atheist. He's not, he just says an agnostic. And his grandfather came up with the term. So he was, which I don't know how that makes any sense, but he was a staunch agnostic, right? Because when I understand agnostic means they're nonchalant. But apparently he was a staunch agnostic. He was a real religious agnostic, you could say. What? Yes. But listen to what he wrote in 1937. These two guys, this is from an article from Tzvi Freeman where he brilliantly shows how it's crazy. Listen to this. This guy, Aldous Huxley, writes, and I'm only going to quote him because I can't say it any other way. He said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning and consequently assumed that it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with the problem of pure metaphysics, which means... A philosopher who's saying the world has no meaning is not just saying that because his mind brought him to a place where he's so pure in his intellect that he has to say there's no God. He's also concerned to prove that there's no valid reason why he personally should not do exactly what he wants to do. And this guy basically goes on to say, which I'll just read the last line. He said, we objected to morality. We objected to religion. He writes about him and his colleagues, which by the way, they were some of the most respected philosophers of the time, that they were agnostics. He wrote at the end of his life, we objected to morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. The supporters of this system claimed that it embodied the meaning of the world. There was one admirably simple method of confuting these people and justifying ourselves in our erotic revolt. We would deny that the world had any meaning whatsoever. So this guy, who was a very influential man in his lifetime, 
he basically writes at the end, I just wanted to do whatever I wanted to do, and I didn't want anybody to tell me boo, so I created this entire, almost like cult-like following, where everybody follows me, said, wow, he's so brilliant, and then right at the end they said, listen, I just didn't want to be told what to do, I don't like the rules that all these religions have, I don't want to be part of this. And to end off with this idea, a professor at New York University wrote a very simple mushal, a beautiful mushal, literally sounds like it's from the Gemara, of what the human brain is capable of. So he said the human rational mind is like a very small man sitting on a very large wild elephant. And the very small man, if you walk over to the very small man, the very small man will tell you, I am in control here. This elephant is my pet. I trained him. I control him. I am the boss over here. That's what the little small man says sitting on top of the elephant. All of a sudden, the elephant goes stomping off to get some peanuts. And the man says, listen, I have him under control. So what is he saying? That the human brain is designed that people will be able to say anything just to be able to prove what they already want. We see this in this week's Parsha with the dreams of Paro. That we see how the non-holiness, it goes down and it goes down and it degrades and it degrades. What can we do about it? I have no idea. What can we do about it in this world that we could say that we're going to stop the, the, the anti-Semitism that's going on the university campuses, which people said, I actually spoke to somebody on the phone the other day, just to give you some perspective. And I said to him, I said, does it bother you what's going on in the, on the university campuses? I'm asking like as an American. And I'm not, I told him, listen, I'm not going to be that stuck up, you know, guy who moved to Israel. And now he's basically getting on the phone with his American friends like, oh, you know, you guys are going to be killed. <laughs> like, uh, you know, we made it to the promised land and you guys are stuck by it. I'm not that guy. I literally told him, I said, that's not what I'm saying to you. I'm asking, what are people saying by Shal Shudis in America? As well, I'm curious, right? I'm going to find that for myself soon. But are people not like... Are they not terrified? Are they not getting like a, an escape pod in, in Israel just in case everything goes wrong? They get themselves a little place or something so they have a place to go to? So we said no. So I said, why not? Well, he said, in our neighborhood, everything is fine. In our neighborhood, everything feels pretty peaceful and everything. He said, the only problem is the university campuses. So I didn't continue the conversation there, but I thought to myself, because to me that just seemed like an obvious, the university campuses are not a different neighborhood. They're the future. That's where all the young people go to school. That's not, it's not talking about, it's not like not your neighborhood. Okay, maybe they're not in your neighborhood right now. But when you, what's going to happen when you think all these university students graduate? Where are they going to move? The future leaders. Every single year. So from this Parsha, we could say one possible solution. Because I've actually seen many big solutions. And I think, you know, the big Deya Zuggers are going to say what we should all do now, whatever. But from this Parsha, a very simple lesson is that to realize the context of the dreams. That even though it looked like everything was coming to Paro, and then Yosef's interpreting the dreams, and we're talking about Paro and Paro and Paro, it has nothing to do with Paro. It has all to do with Yosef. And it's the same thing today. You can look at the world and say, wow, look at these presidents of these university campuses, look at these crazy university students. What's going to be? This looks like a total, you know, I don't know, a total train wreck. It looks like a total disaster. How are we going to fix this? It's not a simple fix. Oh, we'll start uh, also campaigning on the campuses. And the fact that it's growing tells you there's an infection, there's something wrong, which is something which has been going for a long time. Some people say it's Russia, it's Iran, it's China. It's always China for some reason. Somehow it's always China. America, whoever it is. But the simple idea is, is we need to stop looking at the outside and realizing that we are the source of everything. And in two simple ways. We are the source of everything that we mach sviva, which means that when we are proud, strong Jews, and all of us are, which means, let's say, for example, everybody in this room, I would assume if somebody made Aliyah, came to Israel, they're very proud Jews, right? But that means also our neighbors, our friends, 
We make a surrounding. And by the way, there's a story that I heard, an unbelievable story, that there was a rabbi in South Africa, I forgot his name, and he was a rabbi of a big congregation, but he basically realized that he was being controlled too much by the board of directors. So he decided he was going to open up a company to make his own income, which basically would make him more independent and not be controlled by the shul, right? So he does take this on, and it goes great. Now he has a big business and a big shul. The problem is that he's one man. So he's drowning. He's drowning in the shul. He's drowning with the business. He's drowning with his family. He cannot handle everything. He's going nuts. He comes to meet the Rebbe, and he says to the Rebbe, listen, what should I drop? Now he doesn't ask him if he should drop. He says, what should I drop? Should I drop the shul? My business is going very well. Like he's basically telling me, I don't want to drop my business. My business is doing great. Should I drop the shul? Should I? Obviously, I can't drop my family. I need to drop either the shul or the business. What should I do? So the Rebbe looks at him, and classic, classic Rebbe answer. The Rebbe says, you shouldn't drop anything. Not only that, you should continue growing in all your areas, and you'll be very successful. So he starts breaking down, and he's saying, I can't. He's like, Rebbe, you're not understanding what I'm saying. I cannot do it. It's not like an option. I cannot do it. So the Rebbe tells him like this. The Rebbe says, you're making a very big mistake. The Rebbe says, you think that when one person meets another person, it's like science. It's like a chemical reaction, which is from his background in the Sorbonne. He says, what happens when you take two things and you put them together? They now make a third thing. He said, human interaction does not work that way. Human interaction is not a chemical reaction. It's a nuclear reaction. When two people meet each other and they talk and they have a conversation, it doesn't go then third. It spreads and it expands by itself. So you might think to yourself, when you're sure, you need to have a connection with every single member of this. It's automatic when you're speaking and when you're just walking around on your day-to-day basis, you're impacting way more than you could imagine and you need to always have this in your mind. So what we need to realize is that we need to make sure that us as a people, that we are strong. When we are strong, everything else will be strong. We do not need to be so focused on convincing the rest of the world to like us. Meaning I know that that's something very important. We need to go on social media and fight the battle on social media. But we need to make sure, number one, which I don't think is fully there yet. I know it's, we have a lot of unity. But we need to make sure that us as a people, we are rock solid, ironclad strong. And everything else from there will go automatically. That's the key that we learned from this week's Parsha. If the Jewish people are strong, everything else will be strong. We don't have to worry about the Congress and the Senate and all those things. They're important, but they're not as important as step one. Okay? And now to end off with this story. This is the story to end off. There was a boy from Nachal Oz. His name was Ariel Zohar, is Ariel Zohar. When the attack happened on October 7th, he was going for a jog. The terrorist Yamak Shaman broke into his house and they killed his entire family. His father's name was Yaniv, his mother was Yasmin, his sister Trelet, his sister Keshet, all of them were killed. He, thank God, was on a jog, he was safe from the attack. Now when the army came and everybody came and saved him and everything, they said, you can't go back into your house, you can't even go to get anything. But he said, I really need one thing. So there was a Zaka guy, his name was Chaim Medvin. He hears this from him. And he says, what's the one thing that you want? So he says, I need my father's tefillin. Why does he need his father's tefillin? Because his bar mitzvah was going to be in two weeks. <clears throat> this pair of tefillin was his grandfather's tefillin, who's a Holocaust survivor. And he says, I need that tefillin. I need it. So when he hears this, the Zaka guy said, with October 7th, he dealt with taking 700 bodies out of the kibbutzim. And he said he never shed a tear. He said when this kid said this to him, that he wanted the tefillin, he broke down like a baby. He could not, he could not handle it. And he went in, he asked the army permission, he went to the boy's house, he searched through the whole house, 
and he found the tefillin. He said the moment this Zaka guy said the moment that he found the tefillin, he said he felt like it was the same feeling they had in 1967 when they said Akot al biyadenu, Akot al biyadenu. That moment when he picked up the tefillin and he knew those were the tefillin, he said he felt the same euphoria, that feeling. He comes back, he gives the tefillin to the boy, and sure enough, later, two weeks later, the boy has his bar mitzvah, and his grandfather is there, the Holocaust survivor. His grandfather gets up, and his grandfather says, I want to tell you something. He says, I was 14 years old. My entire family was killed. I still stay strong as a Jew. And I was Zoche, I am Zoche to have grandchildren in Israel. He says, you were 12 years old when our enemies came and they killed your entire family. He says, but guess what? You will also be Zoche to have grandchildren in Israel. With these tefillin that you're going to come for your bar mitzvah, you will be Zoche, you will merit to have grandchildren in Israel. So what we mentioned earlier today, it's all connected. What we said about the miracle of the first night, what's the miracle of the first night? The fact that they looked, they had the faith to look in the Beis HaMikdash. This is the miracle of the Jewish people, is that we have stayed strong throughout history. This is the key right now, just like it has always been. We need to be ironclad strong, and everything else will take care of itself. So when we know what we need to do, Hashem knows what He needs to do. God willing, we'll have the, the Mashiach, the final redemption. Everything will be clear, and everything will be good. Yom